Well, this morning, would you please get a Bible, and hopefully you can find one near you if you don't have one, and open up to the Gospel of John. We're going to be in John chapter 11. And as you're turning there, as we celebrate Advent and Christmas, always, I mean, I can't tell you how many devotionals and and all sorts of things I've seen, and we'll even talk some on Christmas Eve, of stories of Jesus' birth of how the Son was given, how He came to us, and the circumstances surrounding that. And it's a wild story. It's a crazy story, and it's true. And one of these stories is found in the Gospel of Matthew that tells us, as we've been seeing, and the the kids mentioned, that wise men, and I hate to burst everybody's bubble, but there weren't just three. They had three gifts, but there were likely more. So, (laughs) you're welcome. Sorry to burst that for you. Um, No, I'm not really, but... uh, These wise men, these magi, these kings of a sort, from the east, it says, came to a king in Israel at that time, a king called Herod the Great. And we'll talk about him, um, hopefully on Christmas Eve. But they asked... These wise men asked King Herod in Matthew 2, verse 2, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. And then in verse 3, it says this, When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And he found out that it was Bethlehem. So Herod told the wise men, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. And after finding Jesus and worshiping him, the text says that these wise men were warned in a dream not to return to Herod. Why? Truth is, the plan of God is not always seen as a great plan, especially by those in power. And then later in that same chapter, Matthew chapter 2, we read that Herod, in a rage over the trickery of the wise men, sent and killed all the children ages 2 and under in Bethlehem in that region. Because he heard the king was there. But Jesus had, praised God, already escaped. So what does that have to do with our text today? Today we're in the Gospel of John, and Jesus is an adult. And we're in the part of the passage where Jesus, the Lamb of God, has come down to the earth according to the plan of God, and he has just raised a man from the dead. And once again, we see the plan of God for the Lamb of God under attack. Why is this? Why? And, and here's another question. Will it succeed? See, the text we're going to study today is a big deal because this attack, if it succeeds the way the enemies of God want it to, means that all hope for humanity is lost. All hope of seeing our sin taken away is gone. All possibility of renewal of this broken world because of the devastating effects of sin is just a fairy tale if this text is not true. So 
So let's read this together. Would you stand with me in honor of God's word this morning as we read John chapter 11, beginning in verse 45 through the end of the chapter. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who is the high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness, to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think? That he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. You have a seat. This text today shows us that there is a plan, a plot hatched with the enemies of Jesus. But this text also shows us there is the truth that there's another plan. And the truth is that the plan of God for the Lamb of God can't be stopped. So as we read this, as we open this, unpack this today, how can we be sure of that? How can we be sure that the plan of God for the Lamb of God can't be stopped? How can we be sure that evil actions can't stop that? How can we be sure as a church that when we are walking in the will of God, that that can't be stopped? First, this text tells us that we must accept a mixed response to Jesus. Many of the Jews, therefore, back in verse 45, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. And in this part of the passage, we see two different approaches to Jesus, two vastly different approaches to Jesus. The first is, some believe him. Some have seen the miracle for more than seen the miracle for what it actually was. When Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, they saw what it was. It was a sign, a sign that signified this is God in the flesh. This is the Christ who is doing what only God can do. And they believed him. This is the group, by the way, you want to be in. 
This is the group that trusts Jesus. Yes, they don't have what we have. They haven't yet seen the crucifixion of Jesus and him, Jesus himself coming back from the dead. But they believe what they know. And they trust him. The other group is kind of split into two little subgroups. One is some don't believe him, some just report him. And these are people, it says, some, but some of them went, this is verse 46, some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Now there are mixed opinions. Let's say, let's give, perhaps give them the benefit of the doubt, of the doubt that they were going to the Pharisees to tell them this amazing good thing that Jesus had done. That's possible. But the way the text reads is these are people who have seen the miracle but don't believe it. These are the people who have the facts. And as you might guess, facts aren't enough for belief. You don't believe without facts. Our belief is not based on nothing. But it's not enough in and of itself. And in fact, this group is more likely operating under fear. And that's the second subgroup of people who don't believe Jesus. They fear him. Some of them went to the Pharisees, huh, interesting group choice, and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. Did you catch that? So they gather this group. This group, by the way, is made of two opposing parties. Pharisees, who were the law keepers, orthodox and beyond. That's called legalism. Orthodox is good. Orthodox plus is legalism. They made rules to keep the rules. That's one side. And then the other side, they call, it's called the chief priests. And in this time, the chief priests were made of a group called the Sadducees. And the Sadducees were kind of like, eh, doctrine's okay. Theology doesn't really matter. It's their game is political. They're the aristocracy, usually chief priests. I mean, it was. It was in a family line. And they had, to be politically, they had to be politically savvy because they were accountable to Rome. If anything went wrong in their region, they were on the hook for it. So nothing unites enemies like Jesus. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council together and they said, They're afraid of him. And look what they do. They admit something. For this man performs many signs. They recognize that they that what Jesus is doing is something that no mere person can do. But do you know what people do with this kind of information when they reject Jesus categorically, when they're afraid? You can give someone who's afraid all the facts, but if they're still afraid... 
you know this from experience, doesn't really change their opinion a whole lot. You might have to repeat it a bunch of times. This man performs many signs. Verse 48, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. In fear, everyone believing in Jesus is a bad thing. <laughs> everyone will believe in him. It's like they did not stop to think that might be a good thing. It might be a great thing. Wouldn't it be a great thing if every single human being you and I know and every single human being across this planet would believe Jesus? If they did, they would likely avoid this last part that they said everyone will believe in him. And here's the real reason they're afraid. They don't fear God. They didn't stop in the middle of this to pray, to seek the Lord's face. They said if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Fear is driving them. And when it says our place, that's their temple, and our nation, that's the Jewish nation, but what they're really after here they don't necessarily care so much about the temple. They don't necessarily care about the Jewish nation as, a, as people. What those represent to them is their position. Because they are in the position of influence. They are in position of power. They are in the position of teaching people. They are in the position of leading the people. You see, this council that gathers together is the highest ruling body that, Jew, that the Jews had at this time. Every decision made here, so long as it didn't conflict with, the, with Roman peace, they could do. It was as good as law. They fear losing their position. When Jesus comes and does something amazing and you see it, how do you respond? Do you believe him? Do you have praise to God for him? Or do you fear him? And not just him, do you fear people who might not think the same way you do about what you've seen, about what you believe? I mean, it's way more convenient for us to keep our mouths shut about Jesus. But it's not real. We must accept a mixed response to Jesus. And the irony is, is that in this mixed response to Jesus, what they feared actually did come true because they rejected Jesus. When they said the Romans will come and take away our, both our place and our nation, guess what? They came and took away everything because they rejected their Messiah. The Romans sacked the city, destroyed the temple, removed its leadership, all culminating in A.D. 70. We must accept a mixed response to Jesus. But, even though there's a mixed response, we know that the plan of God for the Lamb of God can't be stopped. 
And it's even not stopped when they take the next step in their fear. Because we can be sure that God's plan won't be stopped. Because secondly, we must know that God's still working. Look at verse 49 with me. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. Now, we all have circumstances in our lives where there's evil, where there's wrongdoing. Something bad happens to us or we do something wicked to somebody else. Where is God in those moments? You know? Where is God in those moments? He's right there. He's still working. Because it doesn't stop here. Caiaphas, this high priest, puts forward this awful proposition, saying, well, one innocent man, let's kill him so that the nation doesn't have to suffer and we don't lose our positions. But how do we know that God's still working? Because it goes on in verse 51. It says, Caiaphas did not say this of his own accord. But being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So here's the question. God's still working. How does God work? Well, as we see in this text, he works through the plots of evil. Because this scheme, this grand idea from Caiaphas to put Jesus to death, is not just Caiaphas's idea. You go back to Isaiah 53, and it says in that chapter that it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Crush who? The servant. Who's the servant? The Messiah. Who's the Messiah? It's Jesus. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. God works through the plots of evil. Because what Caiaphas is putting forward here is that it's better for them, not necessarily for the nation, because lots of people, lots of common people were believing in Jesus. They were being filled with hope. They were having their lives turned around. No, no, we're losing influence, guys. We've got to kill this man. You know nothing at all he rudely said to them, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. So God works through the plots of evil. Secondly, he also works through prophecy. 51, he did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. You see, even though there was an evil man in the position of high priest, the Levitical priesthood, which was supposed to show the people, teach the people, and mediate a relationship between the people and God. Even though there was an evil man there, God still used the office. God still used a person, a sinful person, to 
to accomplish his ends and prophesy through him. And what did he prophesy? That Jesus would die for the nation. Jesus, God works through plots of evil, he works through prophecy, and he works through promised sacrifice. Because he said he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. Do you know what that is? That's sacrificial language. And not for the nation only, verse 42, 52, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. This is promised sacrifice. This is all over the Old Testament. This is why Jesus is called the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, as John the Baptist called him in, in John chapter 2. This is what is happening here. God is working behind the scenes to bring about the promised sacrifice of his Messiah in the place as a substitute for the nation of Israel and also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. And that is, that's both Jews who are scattered from the exile to Babylon, but that's also and me. Do you recognize that God sacrificed his own son to gather you and me into his family? Do you believe that? He doesn't have Jesus just die for political expediency. He has Jesus die to make a family. He knows his own sheep and he calls them by name and he leads them out. How does he lead them out? He dies for them. He lays down his life, as John 10 said. So we're evil people are plotting Jesus' death. God is planning to bring salvation through sacrifice to you and me. Because our sin keeps us from God. And it's actually so Jesus was a threat to these council rulers. Our sin is a threat to Almighty God. Not that he's really threatened. He could just wipe us all away instantly, just with a thought. But sin comes between us and his holiness. It comes between us and a relationship with him. It comes between us and and life with him, which we were designed to have as being made in the image of God. And when we have our own sin, which all of us do, by the way, Romans 3 says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And it says in another place, the wages of sin is death. So guess who deserves to be sacrificed? We do. 
to pay for our own sin. But guess what? We can't. We can't pay. But a promised sacrifice, the Lamb of God, according to the plan of God, can't. And God uses and works through plots of evil, through prophecy, and through his promised sacrifice to gather into one, one people of God, the children of God who are scattered abroad. And this plan should give us hope. We must know that God's still working. Even when we can't see it, even when we see something in our world that is wicked and evil, and we can call it that rightly, that God has not abdicated his throne, that God is not somehow unaware, that God is somehow wringing his hands helplessly. No, God is still working. Because the plan of God for the Lamb of God can't be stopped. There's another way that we can be sure of this. Thirdly, we must trust God's timing. Verse 53, so from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. It's no longer just getting really angry. It's a coordinated, put-into-writing plan. So, verse 54 says, Jesus therefore no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness, to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think? That he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. As we see all this come together, we should be reminded that God's plan didn't stop here. It didn't stop at the cross. It didn't stop at the resurrection. Actually, we're stuck. Not stuck. <laughs> That's a bad choice of words. We are in the middle between the resurrection of Jesus and the return of Jesus. That's where we are on the continuum of things. So maybe you've wrestled with this. I certainly have. Especially when we see something evil. Why doesn't God just get everything over with? Why does he wait? Why did he wait over 4,000 years for the Messiah to show up? Why didn't he just do it? Why does he make us struggle day after day after day putting to death sin in our lives and trusting him instead of just taking us up, making us new? Why is Jesus no longer, no longer walking openly among the Jews? Why is there all this tension? Why must he be put to death? And why doesn't it just happen? Well, first, the Passover lamb's hour had not yet come. Verse 54, Jesus therefore no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness, 
to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. See, Jesus was not operating in fear. We're told several places in the Gospel of John that Jesus has an hour. And this is not the hour yet. We're getting really close, though, and the last half of the book is almost all about that hour. But the Passover lamb's hour had not yet come. You see, there's a time of preparation. As we see in verse 55, the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many from the country of Many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. Do you remember anything about the Passover in Exodus? What happened? It was on the last plague that God was going to send against the Egyptians. And he told the people of Israel through Moses, he said, tonight is going to be a new night for you guys. And he said, the way this is going to happen is you need to bring a spotless, unblemished lamb into your house. And that lamb, later codified, was supposed to be in the house for approximately a week. So it basically became like the, the pet of the family. Maybe the kids called it Baba or some name. They got comfortable with it. But they were also preparing for that lamb's death. Why? Because God said to the Israelites, he said, you're going to take, you're going to slaughter that lamb, and you're going to put the lamb's blood where? On the doorposts and the lintel of the house, of each of their house, so that when I come to execute judgment on the rejecting, Isra rejecting Egyptians, the destroyer will pass over. I will pass over you, and you will be spared. Anybody who did not do that, their firstborn was killed. And he said it didn't matter. Son, daughter, even livestock. The Passover lamb's hour had not yet come in this passage. That's one reason why God just doesn't get everything over with. Because it says now the Passover of the Jews was at hand. But there's a specific time when the Passover lamb must be sacrificed. And all of that history in Exodus and up all the way up is pointing to the reality that Jesus is supposed to die at a specific time to show that God was telling the truth back there. He was telling the truth there, 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 all the way up pointing to his son. That's why I'm really excited to read the whole Bible with you guys because I want you guys to see, if you don't already know, that Jesus is shown again and again and again and again and again throughout the entire Bible, the Old Testament included. The Passover lamb's hour had not yet come, but also the people needed to be ready for the Passover lamb. They came from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. And that was everything from ceremonial washings to offering sacrifices to, make, to making monetary offerings to being checked out like, uh, like a doctor's exam for the, with, by the priests. 
they were purifying themselves. And they were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think? That he will not come to the feast at all? In one sense they're looking for Jesus, and in another sense they're not really looking for him at all. Because they don't yet realize that he is the Passover lamb. And that he's on God's plan and timetable. And the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. Jesus is put, like the Passover lamb, in a very difficult spot. One, if he does go to the feast, to the Passover, he's going to be arrested. Two, if he doesn't, the Jews get to call him a fake and a lawbreaker because all men over the age of 18 were required to travel from wherever they were to Jerusalem for the Passover. They could get away with some other feasts, but not the Passover. You had to be there. But we must trust God's timing. Because, as the scripture says, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. And that leads to a question, doesn't it? Why doesn't God just end everything now? Jesus has already died on the cross for our sins. Jesus has already been raised, so we know that if we trust in him, we will have eternal life with him. Why doesn't he, why doesn't he come back? Why does he wait? It's for the same reason. Verse 51, he did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. If he had already just finished things, we may not have been born. We would never, or worse, we would have been condemned or stayed in our condemnation, rather. But we must trust God's timing because he, is, he aimed to save you and me, and he aims to save more. And he wants to use us, the body of Christ. That's his church. He wants to use us to go tell the news that the plan of God for the Lamb of God can't be stopped and that people can have hope. He wants to use us to tell that news to people so that they too would know that Jesus died in their place. For them. To gather them into the eternal family of God. The plan of God for the Lamb of God can't be stopped. Every part of God's plan is successful. Every single part. He gave the nation all of Israel all sorts of pictures, promises, and prophecies pointing to what he was going to do. And then in the fullness of time, Jesus was born of a woman under the law. And we celebrate him in Christmas time as Emmanuel, God with us, who faithfully and perfectly followed his Father's will, even to death on a cross. And he is risen from death, triumphing over that death and the spiritual enemies that have tried all manner of things to keep him from succeeding. You see, you and I were also in one spot where we wanted nothing to do with God. 
We thought we could live life on our own and we were just okay. We could pull ourselves up by our own spiritual bootstraps. See, this council represents all of us apart from Jesus. God comes with a plan to rescue us, and we may not like how it looks because we don't get to take any credit for it. We only get to submit to it and receive it as a gift. His plan includes us, his church, the children of God. So today, you and I will be tempted to sin by our spiritual enemy. Today, maybe you and I, but certainly our brothers and sisters around the world, will face plots like this from a council of persecution. For being children of God, purchased by the Lamb of God. But the plan of God for the Lamb of God can't be stopped. As it says in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, He who began a good work in you will see it through to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And then it also says in 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 through 2, See what kind of love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called the children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now. If you have trusted Jesus Christ, you are God's child now. And what we will be, John says, has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Jesus would die for the nation and not for the nation only, but also as the Passover lamb to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. We can take great heart today because of Jesus, and we can follow Jesus today because the plan of God for the lamb of God cannot be stopped. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your good plan. We confess to you, Lord, that on our own, we would not understand your plan. On your own, it doesn't make any sense that you would sacrifice for us. On our own, we don't think we needed sacrifice. But thank you, Lord, that you in your love sent your Son and thank you, Lord Jesus, that you laid down your life willingly to gather into one. Even us, here in the United States in the 21st century, almost 2,000 years removed from the nation of Israel described here. Thank you. Lord, we pray for your help to better understand, to better appreciate, to rejoice in something that the world seems very strange, that we would rejoice that you died. Because 
you knew how how big and how infinite a sacrifice our sins our sins required in order to be forgiven and you willingly paid it Father pray for those here and those who we know and love and even those whom we hate Lord that they would come to faith in you they would trust you you would open their eyes to the reality that you have sacrificed to purchase them to make them children of God And Lord, we ask for your help to use us to bring that news, to bring the message of your plan to people who desperately need to hear that you are still working and that you have good timing. And Lord, let us not be discouraged or dissuaded even though there might be a mixed response to you. <clears throat> 